Future Pulse, investigating innovative cardiovascular research and the intersection of academic theory and clinical practice. I'm Dr. Thomas Nero, interventional cardiologist and director of cardiovascular research at CAFC. This is Dr. Thomas Nero, and welcome to Future Pulse. Today we'll be talking with Dr. Paul Thompson. Dr. Thompson is a noted expert in lipid metabolism as well as sports cardiology. This is the second of three interviews we'll be doing with Dr. Thompson. Dr. Thompson is the Chief of Cardiology Emeritus at Hartford Hospital, as well as a Professor of Medicine Emeritus at the University of Connecticut. Now, as you know, the term emeritus is actually code for extremely old. The great thing about uh, audio and video is that we can imagine us at any age. So we'll uh, use that to our benefit, I think. So I'm going to think I have hair. Uh, We won't release this on YouTube initially. A couple of topics that we were going to go over tonight. One was one that I know that is important to you is satin-associated muscle syndromes. How do you approach this? We have a lot of patients who need to be on these medications, and yet they will come back and they'll say that they can't, t- they can't tolerate them, they can never tolerate any of these medications. How, how do you start with this conversation with the patients? So first of all, you use the right term, statin-associated muscle symptoms, because people argue about whether statins really cause them. Now, I have no doubt in my mind that statins cause them. You know, statins were released in November, um, let me see, 1989. And just a couple years later, uh, in 1990, we reported four men who had very high CK levels when they exercised on statins. Now, exercise raises the CK level, but if you're on a statin, the level goes up much higher. Also remember that very shortly after statins were released, there were two reports in the New England Journal of Medicine of frank rhabdomyolysis on patients who were receiving cyclosporin in combination with the statin. And cyclosporins interfere with the catabolism of the statins. So the point is, I think there's plenty of evidence that these are more than statin-associated. Also, we did a study in which we took 440 men and women who had never been on a statin, and we double-blind, randomly assigned them to either 80 milligrams of atorvastatin or placebo for six months. We called them every two weeks to see how they were doing. And what we looked for is if they had new onset muscle complaints of any sort, cramps, uh, pain, weakness, anything. We took them off the statin for two weeks, and then we re-challenged them to see if it came back within four weeks. Our study showed that about 5% of the people on placebo got symptoms that qualified as statin-associated muscle symptoms, even they weren't on a statin. Why? Because when we stopped the placebo, the symptoms went away. When we restarted placebo, the symptoms came back. But 10% of the people who were on the atorvastatin had symptoms that also qualified. Now, that was significant to the value of 0.054. So a lot of the people who don't believe that statins cause muscle symptoms say, oh, well, it wasn't statistically significant. It wasn't less than 0.05. That's the only study that we know that's really taken people double blind, put them on a statin, put them on placebo, and has demonstrated that. So we think it really occurs. Now, the other thing that's really caused a lot of doubt on this is that people have used these N of 1 studies. Now, there are three N of 1 studies that have looked at statins. What's an N of 1 study? 
the patient is their own control. So what you do is you put them on either a placebo or a statin, usually for a month or a couple months, and then you switch them over. And you do that randomly over a year. Now, the biggest of them is a study called Samson. And what they did is they took people who had had muscle symptoms within two weeks of starting their statin, and they randomized them over a year to either going on a statin, going on nothing, or going on a placebo. And look, these are special people because they got the onset of symptoms within two weeks of starting their statin. And no great surprise, they had less pain on the nothing than they did on the placebo than they did on the statin. The statin was slightly bigger in terms of their pain complaints, but it wasn't statistically significant. Now, it was 200 people. Only 156 of the people actually took even one dose of the pill. We think that that proves that a lot of people don't get symptoms the way they think they did, but we don't think that that proves that statin-associated muscle symptoms don't exist. And here's why. That study doesn't really know that the people had SAMs in the first place. We did a study on CoQ10, and to give you the take-home message, CoQ10 didn't work. But here's what we did. We took people from my clinic, 142 of them. We randomized them to simvastatin 20 or placebo for eight weeks. We then took and put the placebos on the simvastatin, the simvastatins on the placebo. We only let you into the CoQ10 study if you only got pain on the simvastatin. Now, what happened? I thought these people had statin-associated muscle symptoms, but only 36% of them had pain only on the atorvastatin. My point is this. All these studies that say that CoQ10 works or CoQ10 doesn't work, they don't know that they're dealing with people who have statin-associated muscle symptoms. The same with Samson. It didn't test those people beforehand to see if they really had muscle symptoms. So what did Samson prove? It proved that if you're not on anything, you have less muscle complaints. Big surprise. But I don't think that that proves it doesn't exist. I think that there are muscle biopsy studies showing changes in mitochondria and stuff on statins. I think that within several months of statins being released, there were those reports of rhabdomyolysis. One of the interesting things from our study, which is called STOMP, S-T-O-M-P, studies of muscle problems on statins, STOMP showed that there's a slight average rise in CK in the group as a whole. Now, it wasn't high. It was 21 international units, but it was highly statistically significant. So we think that statins affect skeletal muscle and everybody to a little extent. Most people don't get symptoms. What do you do about it? Well, first of all, you can't tell people they're nuts. It's not a way to build a practice. And it's not good medical care either because these people aren't making it up. They've read it on the internet. They're concerned. But one of the most important things is to let people know that their leg isn't going to fall off. I mean, they get all sorts of crazy ideas. And so we reassure them. Then I stop the statin totally. I stop it until they tell me that there's no pain. Now, it's interesting. Many people who really have statin-associated muscle symptoms get better very quickly. And if it persists, then it's probably not the statin. And that's a useful lesson to find out that they can tolerate it. The next thing we do is we reintroduce the statin. And we published way back, I think it was in 2009, that low doses of statins, of the long-acting statins, I should say, rosuvastatin, atorvastatin, pitavastatin, they all have very long half-lives. We do a lot of rosuvastatin Monday and Thursday, five milligrams. And we've shown that you can get about a 27% 
LDL reduction from 5 of resuvastatin Monday and Thursday. Then we add ezetimibe. Ezetimibe will give you about a 20% reduction, rarely is associated with any muscle complaints. And so you've got a 47 to 50% reduction without really doing much damage to the patient. I have plenty of patients that can't even tolerate that. So what do I do? Then we consider using bempedoic acid. Bempedoic acid works in the cholesterol pathway, the same cholesterol pathway that statins do. But statins work on HMG-CoA reductase. And bempedoic acid works on this other very interesting step called citrate lyase. Blocking citrate lyase will reduce cholesterol. And here's the interesting thing. Bempedoic acid is given as a prodrug. It has to be activated in the liver. It has to be activated by long-chain fatty acid acetylase. Long-chain fatty acid acetylase doesn't exist in skeletal muscle. So even if the bempedoic acid escapes first pass hepatic metabolism, avoids that, gets by it somehow, and it gets into muscle, it can't be activated. So we don't think it does anything. And then also, you know, you've got other things. You've got PCSK9 inhibitors. One of the biggest uses of PCSK9 inhibitors is not difficult to control cholesterol levels, but people who can't tolerate statins or won't tolerate statins. So here's my take-home message. First of all, reassurance. You have to treat the people nicely. You can't tell them they're nutty. Then low-dose statins. People don't get this but you get the largest reduction in LDL cholesterol per milligram of drug at very low drug levels. When you double the dose of a statin, you only get a 6% additional reduction. And when you go from the highest doses of statins, 20 of Resuva to 40, or 40 of Atorva to 80, you only get about a 3 or a 4% additional reduction. So you get diminishing returns. So the point is, Low-dose statins plus other stuff are what we try to do with these people with statin-associated muscle symptoms. I know you want to talk about CoQ10 because everybody wants to talk about CoQ10. In our study, we used a lot of CoQ10. We used 600 milligrams. We loaded the people for two weeks before we put them on the statin. We measured CoQ10 levels. They went sky high. We achieved an LDL reduction. We achieved a very high CoQ10 level. There was no difference in symptoms between the people who got Q10 and didn't. So we think CoQ10 is a placebo, but you know, placebos work. So I I have some patients who want to try CoQ10 and I'll say, well, you know, my studies suggest it doesn't work, but some people swear by it. So let's try it with you. The other thing, I have all these patients that will take anything except what I write on a prescription pad. If I prescribe it, it must be dangerous. And so in those instances, um, you know, we still try some Chinese red rice yeast. Now, there's a problem. Chinese red rice yeast contains citronin, which is a renal toxin that you can get citronin-free, but you have to be aware of that, and I tell patients. And of course, the other thing is it's so variable. Yes. One of the issues that we've seen, there's been a number of studies when they looked at the amount of active drug for both red rice yeast and also for CoQ10 you can actually have a tenfold different in active medication in between lots of the same company's drug. You know, the problem is for me when I'm making these recommendations is that I can't be certain that when I'm telling a patient that they they can take this, that they're going to get the same drug, the same amount, and know exactly what we're getting. 
The other thing about Chinese red rice yeast, it's actually lovastatin that it has in it. We think a lot of companies actually lace their Chinese red rice yeast with more lovastatin so that they get a better effect. Now, I can't prove that. It's just speculation. So there is a lot of variability in the Chinese red rice yeast. If you don't see much variability, you're probably getting one of the ones that's added lovastatin. It's been adulterated. I love that. So in your mind, when we're talking about these statin-associated muscle syndromes, I think that statins, as you sort of alluded to, have gotten a bit of a bad rap here. But we've all seen these patients, and we all know that there's some difficulty getting them on board. You know, they're inexpensive. They're ubiquitous. They really are the mainstay of our pharmacologic treatment for hyperlipidemia. Do you think that there's other things that we should be looking at in order to try to allow our patients to tolerate these medications? Since we've been so successful with PCSK9 inhibitors and some of these other newer drugs that we've moved on and that it would be really nice though to figure out a way of getting one of the best medications to more people. Because in the end of the day, there's not a lot of people that can afford $6,000 a year for a PCSK9 inhibitor. So I totally agree with you. And it's not even if they can afford it, it's whether we as a society can afford it. Because I think we forget it as physicians, but the unnecessary costs that we impose on society you know, affects what businesses can pay people. And I mean, it affects lots of things that we don't even think about. I, I don't I do think we've moved on. You know, you can judge what's going on by what you're asked to talk about. And I used to be asked to talk a lot about statin associated muscle symptoms. It's a rare request now, and I think it's because people have just accepted it and they've moved on to PCSK9 inhibitors. You know, I always used to say that nothing cured statin intolerance like a heart attack. <laughs> And I mean it because I run a lipid clinic and so I take care of a lot of people with genetic hyperlipidemia. And I can think of several that didn't want to take a statin. I remember one incredibly handsome guy who was convinced it was going to cause his hair to fall out. And I said, well, look at me. You know, you can still be extremely handsome with no hair. But he didn't buy that for some strange reason. <laughs> when I convinced him that wasn't such a big deal, he, he was worried about something else. And then he had a fairly good-sized anterior wall myocardial infarction, and his ejection fraction went to like 30%. And it amazingly, he was able to tolerate very high doses of atorvastatin without much of a complaint. Now, there is one thing that you really should talk about, Tom. There are people that actually develop antibodies against HMG-CoA reductase inhibitor. And these people can get a muscle syndrome in which they have high CKs that don't come down with stopping the statin, and they have a lot of muscle weakness. It's now possible to get an HMG-CoA reductase antibody measured. And I get people sent to me occasionally with high CK levels. It's been too weak. The CK level has not come down. Get HMG-CoA reductase antibody levels right away because those people often require immunosuppression. Now, why do they require immunosuppression? We don't know for sure. But you know, if you injure skeletal muscle, that skeletal muscle is repaired by these pluripotential cells called satellite cells. And you know, a cell that's going to repair muscle has got to make cell membranes. So those satellite cells have a lot of HMG-CoA reductase. So the theory is they come into the injured muscle loaded with HMG-CoA reductase, which keeps the inflammation going. There's also the possibility that statins in the environment keep it going. It's also been known that people who have these antibodies and stuff, about 9% of them haven't been on statins. Statins are natural. A lot of fungi 
are loaded with lovastatin. So if you eat mushrooms, you're going to get a load of lovastatin. So there are two possibilities that keep the thing going. And it's very important to stop the statin immediately to consider the need for immunosuppression. So do you know any other research that's going on right now about the causes of statin-associated muscle syndromes? And you know, there is a, there's a number of different theories out there, but I really haven't heard of a lot of new work in this territory. We wrote a review on Datton's effect on the reanidine receptor, and here's why it's so interesting. I've always been interested in skeletal muscle because of my background in exercise. And the reanidine receptor is, of course, associated with a malignant hyperthermia. Also, catecholaminergic polymorphic ventricular tachycardia. Now, here's the interesting thing. Reanidine receptor in the muscle is different from the reanidine receptor in the heart muscle. So one of the big questions I've always had is, hey, you know, if these drugs hurt muscle, why don't they hurt the heart? And statins affect the muscle reanidine receptor different than they affect the heart reanidine receptor. If you give statins to the type 1 reanidine receptor, which is skeletal muscle, you get a lot of what's called sparking, which is the release of calcium from the sacroplasmic reticulum. Reanidine receptors control the release of calcium from the sacroplasmic reticulum. So if you give statins to skeletal muscle, you get increased sparking. If you give statins to type 2 reanidine receptors, the heart muscle, you don't get the sparking. So we're very interested in what the role of the ryanidine receptor and calcium metabolism may be in statin myopathy. So you alluded to a little bit ago about how patients who are athletic, who are on statins, how their CKs rise. And we all have some athletes who have coronary artery disease, but want to remain athletic. How do you approach them and their statins, and how do you try to, A, alleviate their concerns, and B, make sure that they're not harming themselves? So let me start with the studies and then come to how we deal with the athletes. So in 1997, we published in the journal Metabolism a study in which we randomized 60 men to lovastatin or two placebo, and we made them walk downhill for 45 minutes. Now, the men who were on the lovastatin the day after exercise had double the CK of the men who were on placebo, double blind. And that persisted for several days. And that's only part of the story because there were two men in that study that we pulled out on day one. And we pulled them out because one had a CK of 10,000 and one had a CK of 20,000. Now, nothing bad happened to them, but they did the same exercise as everybody else, 45 minutes of downhill walking. So the point is some people seem to be more susceptible to the effects of statins plus exercise. In 1979, Art Siegel from Boston measured CK levels in 15 individuals running the Boston Marathon, 15 physicians. Before the race, their CK levels was 106. The day after the race, they were 3,120 or something like that. The point is that exercise, especially downhill exercise, really injures skeletal muscle. You injure muscle more when it tries to contract as it's being stretched, so-called eccentric exercise. Getting back to athletes in statins, there are all sorts of anecdotal reports of athletes having trouble with statins, but we've been unable to show much loss of muscle strength. In our STOMP study, we measured muscle strength at baseline three months and six months, and we found no changes in muscle strength at all. We've taken a bunch of athletes and we've done aerobic performance on them, maximum oxygen uptakes, and muscle strength in various situations, we've been unable, except in a rare individual, one or two guys who dropped their oxygen uptake, to see much change. 
There is a study out of the University of Missouri. And what they did is they took a bunch of people who all had the metabolic syndrome. They put them on a statin or placebo. And those people who were put on the statin and trained for, I think it's 12 weeks, did not increase their oxygen uptake. The placebos did. And they didn't increase citrate synthase in the skeletal muscle. And citrate synthase is a measure of mitochondrial content. So it looks like these people could not increase their oxygen uptake. It looks like these people could not increase their mitochondria. That study has not been repeated to my knowledge. There was an individual who was part of that group who got an NIH grant to repeat that study. I was on his advisory board, but COVID came. And as far as I know, the study hasn't been done. So despite there's lots of talk about it, we're unable to prove that it really does affect exercise performance of skeletal muscle. So what do I do? Well, if somebody's going to run a marathon, for example, I stop their statin five to seven days before they run the race. Why? Because they're going to get some muscle injury from just running the race, even if it's a flat race. I don't want to exacerbate that muscle injury in case they get dehydrated or something. You know, I don't want them to get uh, some renal complications from it. So that's what we do. Is it a smart thing to do? I'm not sure, but we do <laughs> I do it anyway. We certainly take a lot of variability in stopping some of these medications every now and then for a whole host of reasons. And I think that that's probably one of the better ones that I've heard. We stop patients' Plavix because they want to go skiing. Okay, not perfect, but you, know, you have to treat the patient first. Right? That's really the most important piece there. I really do hope that that study that you talked about is able to get off the ground after COVID is over. It is going to be important, and it's really great to be able to talk to your patients about what they can expect given being on the staff and trying to get them back into exercise. You know, as you and I both know, exercise makes people happy. It doesn't just make them live longer and decrease their uh, cardiac event rates. People ask me, you know, I'm putting them on a statin. They say, what, you know, what's the major side effect of the statin? And I say, you'll live too long uh, because statins really do prolong life. And yet there's such a concern about using them. Now, look, I don't believe they should be in the water. I mean, I don't. But in people that are at high risk and more and more people at high risk, these are one of the things that are really prolonging life. I don't know many cardiologists that in my age group who's not on a statin. And I'll never forget being at a meeting with Gene Brownwald at the Brigham. And he said to me that when Lovastatin was released in November 1987, he started on that day and he hasn't missed a day since. And he's a smart guy. So I kind of trust him. Yeah, I, I, I would follow his advice as well. Well, Dr. Thompson, thank you again for such a thought-provoking discussion. Have a great evening. Thank you.